it's my great pleasure to speak with Ian Garner again uh, for the second time on the channel. And today we're going to be looking at the terrifying topic of the indoctrination of Russia's youth. We'll be exploring some of the themes that he's covering in his forthcoming book, Z Generation, into the heart of Russia's fascist youth. Ian Garner is an historian and expert on Russian war propaganda. He is also a world-leading authority on the myths and propaganda surrounding the Second World War Battle of Stalingrad in the Soviet Union and Russian literature. Ian has been interviewed for the Washington Post, Rolling Stone, New York Times, BBC, Vice News, Mashable, and many other media channels. He is also a prolific commentator on Twitter, so please check out his feed. It's hugely entertaining as well as insightful. Welcome to Silicon Curtain Podcast. If you enjoy the material we create and our fantastic guests, then please do like and subscribe to help more people discover the content that we produce. Let's dive into it, Ian, because this is a truly terrifying theme. What led you to write about this? Because I know your last book was about Stalingrad uh, and the experience of people there, both as a sort of uh, historical and cultural phenomenon. What led you to turn to this subject? Uh, partly self-flagellation, um, because it is among all the grim topics that you could have picked to talk about with regards to today's Russia. This is one of the bleakest possible. But I think I think the bridge from Stalingrad to thinking about youth indoctrination and paramilitary groups and growing sort of fascist and ethno-nationalist urges is this sense of history. And Stalingrad, you know, we think of it as a historical phenomenon, but actually this, this religion of war, a religion of sacrifice, is something that the Putin government has been increasingly pulling out and amplifying with ample support from the population as well, might we add. And that today's children are going to see, assuming that the state doesn't collapse in some spectacular fashion, but they're going to see this increasingly over the next five, 10 years as they go through junior school, elementary school and into high school and beyond. This is the environment that they're growing up in. They're gonna learn these myths and stories of war. And they're going to be, if the government can do it, trained in an increasingly warlike mindset. And so there is a gap there from past to present that is not as big as one might imagine it to be. So the 90s was a bit of a hiatus, wasn't it? Where um, I was about to say the Hitler youth, but I didn't mean that. The the communist pioneers and the equivalent of the sort of, um, you know, a mashup between the Hitler youth and the Boy Scouts is what Russia had. But you know, people would strip guns down, they'd go on camps, they'd go on training and that kind of stuff. But it wasn't nearly as militarized as the current youth cults that you've been uh, exploring. So it'd be interesting to learn about the history of youth indoctrination and why the current incarnation is particularly toxic. So, I mean, this is, a, this is a huge question, but of course, the the starting point, I apologize if you're a Russianist or a Russia follower you'll already know all about the soviet pioneers but the soviets were of course very interested in youth indoctrination and the soviet pioneers was the place where this began for them of course in schools and things like that but the idea essentially in this sort of totalitarian state was to fill children's lives children's existence with opportunities to be good communists and chances to learn what it was like to be a good communist and so 
millions of Soviet children would have joined the pioneers, which it was a pretty tame organization, to be honest. It wasn't scary in the way that we, you know, we think of sort of the Stalinist era as this frightening, frightening place, but the pioneers was was pretty tame. Children would go after school and around school. They would dress up and they would go to summer camps, things like that, learn to sing the songs, learn the stories of their idols, the sort of, you know, the dream children, the perfect children of the Soviet past and present. And all of this ended quite suddenly in 1991. And yet many Russian adults today have quite fond memories of their time in the pioneers. And you, you can find plenty of movies, music, documentaries, things like that, where there's a real sort of fondness and nostalgia for the pioneers. And so there is this idea of youth groups never really disappeared in the 90s, even though the ability of the state and the interest and willingness of the state to provide that sort of widespread indoctrination generally dissipated throughout the 90s. It sparked up again, however, quite quickly in the early 2000s. And of course, the party that Putin created as a kind of fig leaf for his own power they really started to uh, reintroduce the idea of organized events with people wearing similar t-shirts, slogans, and a certain element of, uh, call it branding, you know, proto-fascistic branding, um, but not unlike, you know, party systems that you may have in the West um, and the youth groups attached to them. So you could see that starting to re-emerge, couldn't you, in the 90s, but no specific youth movement. They did have the Boy Scouts and the scouting movement was introduced into Russia. I don't know if the uptake of that was was very widespread, really. Um, but there wasn't a direct replacement for pioneers, was there, for, for 20 years? No, and so there, were, there was, I mean, there were two phenomena. There was, there was a pretty, um, a slightly more worrying phenomena of extreme nationalist, Eurasianist, and ultra-nationalist splinter groups who really kept the pioneer spirit burning but in a much more militarized fashion just basically usually slightly scary guys very macho very masculine sort of toxic kind of guys essentially running camps in the woods for kids and you know, very poorly attended not a widespread movement at all on the other hand the interest in summer camps continued and this is this is important because the Putin government has revived this and sort of appropriated this interest. But these were much more like a sort of American summer camp where, you know, kids would go off and spend a, a week or two somewhere slightly more pleasant than downtown Chelyabinsk or wherever they're from, out in the woods and sing songs and pretty relaxed environment. Great places to be. I actually worked in some back in the day and they were they were lovely and not scary places of indoctrination by any means, just a normal childhood experience. But what you point to, the, the youth groups, is something that Putin revived very early on in his regime, when it became important for Putin to identify himself as belonging to or somehow exemplifying a turn to youth. If the 90s were all about sort of image of a decrepit Russia, an aging Russia that was drowning in debt, financial collapse, uh, a collapsing empire, and of course, 
embodied by its president, who was obviously physically aging, then Putin was all about a new era, the turn of the millennium. And, you know, here he comes on December 31st, 1999, first day as acting president, and he tells everybody, I'm young, I'm powerful, I'm, you know, this all-action all judo guy. And so they start to create these entirely fake youth movements. Like the one everybody has heard of is Nashi, which means ours. And so there is a the real kind of nationalist element, even within the name. These are our guys. And then there's people on the outside as well that don't belong to us. It's already othering, isn't it? It's already defining the it us is, and the them. It's, it's an extreme form of othering, extremely, extremely blunt. And there is nothing clever about this in the early days. And so, you know, Nashi, Nashi is a, a fairly widespread movement, but it's not a real movement in the sense of having many regular members who are attending meetings. And what it's really about is running rallies, going to squares, going out in public, dressing in identical t-shirts, waving flags, chanting, giving the same, this impression of a sort of a uniformity in youth and showing that young people, Young people are with Putin, and it makes for great TV. It's a very photogenic kind of activity. It's like a sort of miniature Nuremberg rally, and clearly they're influenced by Lenny Riefenstahl. A sort of Potemkin village uh, politics for, for the social media age, in a way. Absolutely. And, and of course, the, the raw fact of this is there were some people joining these movements who are really motivated and really buying and were attending lessons and reading Nash's manifesto, which is this sort of very regressive, conservative manifesto about defending patriotism and traditional values. But they were in the minority. The majority of people who joined were either people who were sort of somewhat coerced into doing so, or much more likely, they were bored and unemployed hooligans youths, ruffians and tearaways from towns around Moscow who were given train tickets into Moscow for the day, who were given a bit of cash or some other goodies and said, told, turn up at the rally, cover up your swastika tattoos. And there is literally an account of this from another movement called Walking Together, which came just before Naji. Cover up your swastika tattoos, turn up at the rally for a couple of hours, then go do whatever you want. We don't care. So it's, it's a fake. But it plays so well on television because it creates the impression for the viewer when you're viewing from Chelyabinsk or you're viewing from wherever Kamchatka or Vladivostok, you're not looking at the rally. You don't see what's happening beyond the frame. All you see is that the young people are with Putin. The energy, that sort of, you know, the vivacity, the excitement is on the side of the state, is on the side of the regime. And 20 years on, we've got this echo, haven't we? Because there was the extremely ironic now given events there was the victory celebration on red square for the um incorporation of Kherson into the motherland which lasted was it was it barely three weeks uh, um but they sealed off red square they bust people in from the provinces and the prigrud or the suburbs um but the rest of the town was was kind of in lockdown wasn't it you know you wouldn't go near it unless you were part of that whole sort of fake branded uh you know audience but i i actually think it's something of a misreading to say that this was entirely fake because 
public opinion has followed those early rallies, the rallies from 20 years ago. And so, yes, the town was locked down outside, but only in the sense that this was a major rally in downtown Moscow. And of course, you have to close off streets and you have to direct traffic and things like that. So this is not the sense of a lockdown where we're keeping people away. And of course, what we saw as well were scenes of people continuing to dance and party into the night. However, the central logic, the central narrative of the performance was very, very similar in that we still had young people coming out, young performers surrounding Putin, who, of course, spoke. We had a girl who claimed to have been a sort of partisan on the front lines in the east of Ukraine for years, read out the poem. Right. These are images of youth, but now in a much, much less of a sort of a frothy light sense, because, the, you know, the, the stuff from 20 years ago was was quite bright. And if not cheerful, it was glitzy. Right. It was very sort of early 2000s sequins and shiny sort of chic. What we had now is that rally on Red Square was dark, red lights. It was quite frightening. It was quite sort of imposing but still the attempt was there to align Putin with this sort of youthful energy and youthful enthusiasm and we've seen that throughout the war that the idea has been to stage these demonstrations and often bring in young athletes young sportsmen young personalities to show that you know this is the real energy in the country that the protesters who you know you might have seen a protester or two on telegram or you might have caught a glimpse of them from somebody's vk feed but that's just a one-off they're a dying breed they don't belong here this is still where the energy is in the country and of course it's merged with the z phenomenon and i wanted to understand how these have kind of coalesced because unlike the nazi ideology and, and, and or iconography really i meant to say um, which was evolved over years and probably evolved a number of experts. You mentioned Leni Riefenstahl. You know, there's all a thought went into the branding. You had Hugo Boss designing, you know, the SS uniforms. You know, there's a lot of thought goes into that. It almost seems like the Z is an accidental uh, icon, but has been incorporated into this youth movement. Yeah, I, I think so. And I think the Z is a good example of a, you know, without wanting to read too much into it, it's a good example of the failing of the Russian war and the failings of the Russian state in a broader sense, in that the war was supposed to be over very quickly, really. You know, it's it's pretty obvious to me that the war was supposed to end, you know, whether it was take Kiev in three days or whether it was a week, we don't know. But it became apparent almost immediately that that plan for a swift war and a collapse of the Ukrainian government was was not going to come good. So they had to come up with something to turn this from a special military operation into a more long-term, long-term thing. And clearly they hadn't hadn't prepared for it. They hadn't prepared any sort of any of this sort of iconography, anything new. But what I will say is that fascist regimes are terribly good at doing two things. Firstly, coming up with new stuff quickly because none of their ideology really adds up right when you when you try and read fascist philosophy none of it makes sense because it's inherently illogical and irrational and the other thing they're good at is cannibalizing material from elsewhere 
And this is something the Putin regime has shown itself very adept at. And so they will cannibalize something like the, the letter Z. They will cannibalize the Soviet victory flag, that red flag with the white writing that you might have seen from World War II. They will cannibalize the, the ribbon of St. George right? and just take these things and throw them into a big pot, shake them up, create new performances, new spectacles, embed them into the rituals that exist and that they're giving to the population, in particular the young population, until everybody just gets acclimatized to them. And Zed doesn't seem to have been a terrific success in this respect. I don't think it will be very enduring and a sort of uh, motif that the regime will continue to use. But it is undoubtedly now associated with the war. And in that sense, it's been terrifically effective. If you have a Z on a car, or you show a Z in a window in Russia, there's only one thing that it can possibly mean. Right. And they've done that at a great speed. Right. Yes. And, uh, you know, in future years, it might be associated with wrecked equipment, you know, smashed tanks, vehicles um, and so on. But at the moment, it seems still to have some kind of uh, uh, dynamism, at least in Russia. Another aspect of the merging of symbolism is religion as well, isn't it? And I know in your book you are going to cover not only the blending of sort of nationalism and ethno-fascism, but also the co-option of religion into the whole unholy mix. Well, un unholy is about the word for it. And one of the interesting things that fascist states al always seem to do is to take control of the church and to subjugate the church. And certainly in today's Russia, it's impossible to find a dividing line between the church and the state. And what's really interesting for me here is that the state's central myth is, and this, this relates back to World War II and back to Stalingrad, is this idea of necessary sacrifice, of martyrdom being something that's an ideal, that really the best way to become the perfect Russian is to sacrifice yourself in battle for the motherland. And we're seeing today that the church, and you can go and find videos of the patriarch and many other priests preaching this from pulpits, is to tell children that if you die, if you sign up and go to the front and die in the fighting, then you will be sanctified, you will become a saint. Right? And what is fascinating is that then if you turn on the propaganda channels, if you go and look at Vladimir Solovyov, who actually said this, there is a fascinating video of him speaking to a sort of a youth conference, very glitzy and all sort of hipster. There were a bunch of YouTube celebrities that came out or Rootube celebrities that came out and gave little speeches. And then Solovyov was, of course, the main guy. And what did he tell people? Almost exactly the same thing. To die is holy. Go sign up for the war. Dying is great. Dying for the motherland. Who needs apartments? Who needs money and material goods? Right? And you might think, well, children don't believe any of this stuff. And teenagers don't believe any of this stuff. And to a certain extent, they won't. People may not believe it in the literal sense. But we're still, I think, in the early days of this shift towards a very extreme, really extreme form of sort of religious ethno-nationalism and fascism. And the words are still sort of, you know, those, those words are still sort of swimming around in my mind and thinking which are the most appropriate words to use. And you wonder in five or ten years time for somebody who is sort of six or seven hearing that on television, what impact will it have on their psyche? when attending these rallies seems so appealing, it seems so whole, 
versus, for example, being somebody who is a protester who might be thrown in jail, who might be labeled as a traitor, being somebody who is queer and therefore non-Russian and non, not good, somebody who was opposed to the war and being driven out of the body politic. And, and of course, you know, the violence obviously has spilled out now and we'll, we'll examine conscription and the implications of that. But Russian, not just youth, but Russian society has been swimming in a sea of violent language, ultraviolet language, really since 2014, hasn't it? Um, when really the ante was upped. And um, I know Ukrainians were being sort of vilified before that, but it really kicked off in 2014. So we've had an extensive period in the immersion of the language of violence. But most Russians won't have been physically taking part in violence. They'll have been almost cosplaying it through watching it on TV, rehearsing these violent thoughts through telegram channels and so on. But now we're seeing the actual explosion of violent action. So I think absolutely central to my thinking, this is a vital part of understanding what's happening in Russia today, is twofold. Firstly, that speaking a language of violence, using violent language leads to violence. It creates an atmosphere in which violence is normalized and it creates an atmosphere in which it is acceptable to target other people, right? And here in the book, very briefly, I dive into some theory around what academics would call performativity, which is not the sort of the idea of pretense and sort of spectacle that we would think of um, in the popular sense, but the idea that language creates reality. In particular on social media, this is important because Russians can surround themselves and live in this world of really extreme violence. And the second thing that's important to understand is that this turn towards violent language does not begin in 2014. It comes through the Soviet Union, which of course was a, an extreme form of nationalist government. It wasn't really a socialist government. The internationalism and the pacifism in the state, if it ever really existed, only existed extremely briefly. And in the 90s, the interest in sort of liberal orders and liberal pacifism, again, only existed very, very briefly. And there was a turn to militarism pretty quickly in the mid 90s. And so Putin, under Putin, what do we see? Well, Putin speaks a language of violence and always has. And in the book, I draw attention to that very famous phrase that he used about Chechen terrorists. That is, we'll hunt them down and we'll kill them wherever they are in two weeks. We'll kill them on the shitter if we have to. This is not the language of a sort of, you know, PR trained, savvy politician, Western politician. Putin never was that. He was always speaking in violent terms. And indeed, he launched an extremely violent war in Chechnya just about as soon as he could. And that violence continued throughout the early 2000s. But the other was an Islamic other at a time when in global politics, violence towards Islamism was generally tolerated for, you know, I'm not going to get into that, but for, you know, you might say moral reasons. And th there's a debate about the ways that violence was conducted there. But that meant targeting parts of Russia's population. 
because Russia has a right now it's about 20% of the population is Islamic. And it continued in the early 2010s with a language of violence around the liberal opposition, around people associated with Navalny or anyone who opposed Putin, and in particular queer people who were, who were portrayed as invaders, people who wanted to attack Russians, people who wanted to disease Russia, who are an epidemic and who needed to be somehow expunged, sterilized, ritually burned. Some of the language is extreme, right? This is extreme stuff. Only in 2014 did it turn to Ukraine, and that's when it really spilled out, right? And when war truly became the norm in Russian society, I think. And television. I mean, it, it, what I'd like to break down is who are we talking about? Who's watching what on what platforms? Because, you know, the cliche I have in my head is it's the older generation consume television. And of course, there's a entertainment formats, the sort of ritual violence, the political discussions have been turned into a, a sort of entertainment type format. That's where we see uh, Margarita Simonyan, Solovyov and many of these and the sort of, you know, really disgusting things that they frequently say. Um, but do the youth, you know, tune into that? I have the impression that more, that's going to be more about sort of Telegram and other platforms, which perhaps would have, you know, displayed more of an opposition slant, more balanced kind of slant. But since the war, there's been a whole series of, of sort of Zed propagandists and uh, influencers on, say, Instagram, who've bought into this whole state uh, narrative of violence, haven't they? Absolutely. And, and one of the things I did in the book was talk to some of the people who are Zed influencers. And I chart this sort of explosion of creativity that is on the, the side of Zed, whatever Zed might mean on any given day. Folks who are making music, making music videos that are often quite shockingly uh, unpleasant young teens who are doing sort of anime style art that is designed to support the war effort and that shows off dying Russian children and glorious Russian troops. I dive into the world of TikTok where Russians in particular Russians who've joined some of the state's more militarized youth groups are engaging with each other and encouraging this language of violence and speaking about Ukrainians in what are quite shockingly racist terms, speaking about them as animals, as diseased, as needing to be expunged. They're egging each other on. And of course, they are throwing there is just sort of this language like mix and match language of throwing insults out against Western people, against queer people, against Ukrainians, against anybody who is not Russian, because all of these people in the language of the state are equally bad because they threaten Russianness itself by their very existence. There is no difference in this language between being queer, between being Ukrainian, being liberal. They're all somehow innately, inherently wrong. And that's now been enshrined in law. I think it even came in, was it uh, yesterday? Um, the sort of traditional family values has been encodified. I obviously haven't read it, but a law has been introduced that references traditional values and the family in quite extreme terms, I think. So 
Putin is trying to lay out almost a moral case for what essentially is a nothing other than a sort of genocidal point of view. Yeah, absolutely. And and this this new law is sort of an update on the 2013 uh, law against spreading propaganda about non-traditional family values to children. Well, now it applies to everyone in society. And I'm in I'm in contact with a lawyer in Russia, and I have to I apologize if I talk slowly because I need to choose my words carefully because I don't want to give any information about them away, who is quite concerned that the effect of the law is essentially that anybody who accuses you of somehow promoting queer values means that a police investigation against you would result in any context for any reason. And what this does is silence people. And it turns the battle against the state and the battle for, for right and good, and there are many Russians who still want to fight that battle, it turns it inwards. And it makes Russians doubt themselves and fear for themselves and wonder how they can how they can talk about the things they need to talk about to get support in a broader, you know, across the broader population and who they're talking to, what the effect of really any action might be. And before all of these layers of hatred and persecution, it does seem, doesn't it, that behind this all, Putin has a set of ideas, um, a, a notion of Ukraine as not being a place, not being a people. Does this date back to maybe the Second World War and perhaps you know ideas that somehow Ukrainians collaborated or some collaborated with um, you know, the, the German fascist forces? Is there a kernel of some historical reality that is informing his sort of genocidal hatred? Or is it, do you think, more strategic um, or impulsive? I think, I think it actually dates back much earlier than the Second World War. Actually, the Second World War perhaps isn't, isn't as important and Bandera isn't as important as you would think. Bandera in particular is an easy person to pick on for very good reasons because he is, to say the least, a sketchy figure. And I should say no more about it, otherwise everyone will be very mad. Um, but you can go back to a history of Russian colonialism and imperialism that simply views Ukraine as an offshoot as a little brother of Russia, as something that is inherently Russian rather than inherently independent. And and, and that kind of ignores some fundamentals, doesn't it? That, that uh, Ukraine predated Russia by many centuries that a lot of Russian identity, culture, architecture, many of the features that we associate as being intrinsically Russian, almost certainly many of them predated by Ukraine and were imports from that culture. And then even you go to the 19th century and Russia co-opts many sort of literary and cultural figures, especially Gogol. Um, you know, if, if Pushkin was the, the brain of, uh, of, of, of Russian literature uh, or the mouth, uh, and Dostoevsky, the brain, well, Gogol is is the soul um, and has that sort of extraordinary Ukrainian sort of humor, but also ability to look at Russian society from the outside and come up with an extremely, you know, if people haven't read Dead Souls, it's a, it's a sort of visceral attack on, on, on um, Russian, uh, the Russian state and corruption. But Russia has this way of co-opting. And I think, is, is that partly also what's driving it is a kind of, 
a jealousy, a realization that they share a culture, but not wanting to share it, wanting to co-opt and own it. I think it's the, it's the logic of colonialism. It's the logic of empire. And empires always work. The, the imperial center is a place that people want to come to. It's a place that offers opportunity. But it's a place that other cultures, minority cultures, have to bend themselves around and form themselves around, deform themselves to join in with, to succeed in. And Gogol's a particularly good example. And I don't want to speak on it too much because I'm really not the expert on Gogol. But he does have this sort of confusing, fragmented, split identity as partly Ukrainian, partly Russian, neither and both, right? Let alone the sort of the Polish influences as well. And I really don't know anything about that. And throughout the history of Russian culture and particularly the imperial era, anything could be taken and reincorporated, readopted, remade to be the thing that it needed to be. And that's what the Soviets did in the 1920s and 1930s, in particular towards the end of the 1930s, when they started just running willy-nilly through classical culture, world culture, and imperial culture, anything you wanted. You could quote Shakespeare if you did it in such a way that proved that Shakespeare was somehow a good communist. What Again, whatever that might mean, whichever day of the week that it was, that could fluctuate. And so that's what we see today. We see this this sort of consumption, borrowing of ideas, reforming of history and the past. And when we try to sort of chase Russia's tale and say, well, this, this isn't the reality, this isn't what really happened, here's the actual truth, you're talking about something completely different. We can never catch them. You know, it's like grabbing at thin air because this is a sort of mythical function of history where history functions as a series of illusions and illustrative lessons at this sort of Aesopian level, rather than a level of reality. And that's why it can be so frustrating watching and reading Russian propaganda today, because you hear, you know, there's going to be a nuclear war, um, they'll all kick the bucket and we'll all go to heaven, like Simon Yan said a few months ago. And of course, we're thinking, well, that's a dumb thing to say. That doesn't make any sense because we're all going to die. But if you're thinking in these mythical terms, if you're thinking in these quasi-religious terms, it does make sense. Because anything can make sense. It's completely irrational, but you can't, you can't challenge it on a rational basis. And so to bring it back to the children and the issue of youth indoctrination, this is the mindset that children are being brought up in today. And I think, you know, we are always trying to rationalize and normalize. So throughout this, you know, experts, analysts, the media, we're trying to look for logic in Putin's actions based on our own framework uh, of thinking, our own historical references. Um, and we're trying to look for consistency uh, in his ideology and, you know, confused because we don't find it there. Um, now, I know Peter Pomerantsev has some interesting ideas about the Russian ability to compartmentalize, um, you know, completely uh, contradictory ideas and somehow, you know, keep them in your head at the same time. We won't, we're going to the, the psychology of it. Um, but isn't it true to say that Putin's ideology, and that's maybe too big a word for it, it's not consistent, it's not intellectually rigorous, and it's not something that's been born out of, you know, multiple thinkers and, and iterations 
it, it just doesn't hold together. And I know the media has been seeking that way in and they've latched on someone like Dugin as Putin's brain. Isn't it true that, uh, you know, Dugin is much more like Putin's colon. He's just trying to digest some, 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 a bunch of indigestible scrag ends um, and trying to sort of mesh them together into something coherent. But it's really not when you pick it apart, is it? No, I think really the question has to come down to, I, I agree with everything you've just said. <laughs> like the colon reference for its, for its blood. This, this may be the title of the episode. No, I'm saving that for a future episode. Dugin, Putin's colon, question mark. Um, but the, the question really for me about Putin and or the regime, because it may not be about Putin at all, but the, the centre of power in Russia is, is it purely just a kleptocratic kind of power that seeks money and influence? Or is this a power centre that is driven by this distorted sort of colonialist imperial vision. And from what I've talked about so far, you can probably see where I lie, because I just don't see how the kleptocratic approach can function, given how badly this war was planned and has gone. If they wanted to be rich and make money, they wouldn't have launched the war, nor would they still be pursuing the war. They would have well, they would have never done it in the first place, but they would have taken some off-ramp at some point in the last few months and said, all right, this has gone badly, but we can still put a stop to this. But right now they're, they're rushing further and further towards the precipice. And there's something I've sort of dragged up from my memory, and I think it's quite an interesting idea. If you look at the Soviet Union, of course, America was the big enemy. Um, it was the arch nemesis, uh, and Britain to an extent as well, to a lesser extent. But I remember talking to Russians and, you know, over over drinks and you got the impression that, you know, they could both despise and loathe Americans and the Brits and what they've got, their wealth and their achievements. They could loathe them and admire them at the same time. And I, I, I remember recoiling horror, the realization that actually what many Russians of my acquaintance were doing was looking at the imperial parts of our history. And that's the bit they admired. The fact that we'd conquered so much territory, that we'd created so much economical military power. And, you know, in some ways that was a worthy enemy for them to have. Now it's split between Ukraine and um, America. They still sort of loathe and I think compare themselves to America in these grand imperialistic terms. But Ukraine, is troublesome, isn't it? They they want to think of Ukraine as, as a kind of untermenschen. Um, and the idea that Ukraine somehow might be more wealthy, more organized, more democratic, um, and have a more comfortable, humane existence with a more vibrant culture. I mean, to me, this is one of the reasons I think why they launched the war. It's There's a Russian word for it, it's zavist, it's pure envy. Uh, but also the fact that this is not an enemy that matches Russians' grand impression of their role in history. I think there, is, there are some interesting points here. And you do have to wonder whether that envy is real or whether is the, there is simply this, as I try to describe in the Z Generation book, this constant idea that to renew the self to somehow make up for the fact that Russia itself lags behind, Russia itself is collapsing, 
something else is to blame. And if only that thing can be somehow surgically removed from Russia, Russia can be made whole again. Russia can be made pure again. And this is, you know, if you had to sum it up, that is the lesson that kids are being taught today in schools and propaganda lessons in youth groups. And whether it's removing the queer population, whether it's removing deleterious Ukrainians, this is this is what we have to do. And yet at the same time, people are still watching Western movies. People are still borrowing Western cultural forms. But what I show in the book is increasingly that the vehicle for those or the contents of those forms is Russian. And so what you get is a TikTok video that resembles the same TikTok dances, the same kind of hashtags, the same movements that you would see in a, you know, your average TikTok video produced by an American team, but it's produced by somebody in uniform who is dancing about what an awesome time they're having on the parade ground and, you know, hashtag self-realization, hashtag self-help and that kind of, you know, Instagram sort of talk. And so it looks like there is an interest in the West, but actually it's not. It is a sort of a russification of the best or the, mo the most useful of Western culture. That's what I found interesting when I was there. I used to listen to a lot of music and so on, and there were some genuinely interesting and, and original bands. But a lot of the culture, as you say, is it's sort of co-opting the tone and the form uh, of, of, of the Western format and sort of russifying it. Um, and, you know, it's fairly innocuous when it's sort of pop culture and consumerism, but when it uh, when it takes that sort of normal culture and weaponizes it, that that's when it becomes quite sinister. And is this is this an organic effort, or is this very much an engineered uh, process? Both, Genu genuinely both. I think lots of people would look at this and say, "Well, this must all come from the state," and the state is certainly pushing and prodding and giving momentum in the right places. As we know, the state is quite incompetent, quite inept and quite unable to do things in the grand scale that it would like to do things. We see that at the front. We see that in the propaganda. We see that in the economy. And there is a genuine widespread social media movement in which young Russians are recreating themselves in these ways, using this language of violence, this language of hatred. But yes, they borrow it from the government. It sort of slowly drips through from the television, from family members, from large government-sponsored VK groups into their world. And of course, it comes from schools as well, where they're all now doing these mandatory patriotism lessons every Monday. But it ends up being incorporated into the ways that they talk about the world. And that creates this sort of self-perpetuating momentum. And is there a fundamental understanding? Because I think, you know, this is something that is not articulated or people don't have to articulate it. In Russia, they just understand the rules. They understand how things work without it having to be written down or spelled out. Um, and all this activity, the sort of government supporting, Zed supporting, whether it's organic or not, underlying it, there's a, fund a fundamental understanding that, well, either you're with this movement or you adopt another format for your communication. And that that isn't just about being, let's say, an oppositionist 
like you would be in the West. You can still be a member of society, a member of the state. You can still own your house, your car, your girlfriend, whatever, your boyfriend. It really doesn't matter. Your political view doesn't change your status in life vis-a-vis -vis the state. Isn't there a fundamental understanding at every level of Russian society, however, that is if, if you don't adopt the norm, if you become the other, you, you are outside, you're beyond the pale, and you're excluded from all of economic and civilised life? I think this, is, this has been increasingly true over the last 10 years, since Putin's re-election as president, since what we call the patriotic shift turn towards patriotism and increasing ide ideology in public life that you basically have a choice you can be russian and it is very clear what to be russian to be a good russian means and that means reinventing yourself yourself it means presenting yourself in a particular way it means speaking the language of the state publicly or you can be something else and you can be on the outside. So again, going back to the beginning of our discussion, that word Nashi, ours, the name of the youth group. Now you are either Nashi and you are part of Nasha Russia, or you are something else. And if you're something else, then you must be by default. The logic goes, you must be with the Ukrainians. You must be with the liberals. You must be with the queers. You must be with the Americans. This amorphous group of opponents and that gets to the heart doesn't it of that impression of ukrainians because many russians i think genuinely believe i think putin genuinely believes this that ukrainians are just russians that have gone bad russians that have become vashi they've become vassals of america american culture american power that they've somehow been spoilt and you know We've tried to change them. We tried to bring them back into our brotherhood, um, but they're now beyond the pale. And the only thing you can do with them is annihilate them, essentially. I mean, that's the logic of the Nashi and the Vashi, you know, ours and, and yours. Yeah, you, you're absolutely right. And this is why the language of disease and vermin and the idea of an epidemic is so important. And that is language that Putin, as again I allude to in the book, has been using for a long, long time about Russia's post-Soviet experiences. That famous speech that he made in 2005 about the end of the USSR as the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the era, that is very selectively quoted. Because what he also says is that the epidemic of the 1990s was something we had to live through to give us spiritual energy in the presence, in the present. We had to undergo the sacrifice. We had to experience the martyrdom. And that's why today, in this, you know, if you read the logic in the most literal sense, we don't want to kill our younger brothers. We don't want to expunge their Ukrainians necessarily, but... It is an epidemic, it is a disease, an infection, and if we therefore expel it by force, destroy it, somehow society will be charged with spiritual energy again. And once more, we come back to the fact that this fascistic ideology is just wild. It doesn't make any sense. And this is why you have to interpret it in these mythical terms, in these terms that are beyond sort of enlightenment and logic readings of reality because if you try and do so you can never understand people's thought processes 
And until conscription, people of all age groups, especially young professionals, they were able to either ignore it and carry on their lives or even dabble with it, you know, cosplay the fascism, uh, consume it through TV, and, and literally, you know, just put on a costume and pretend until conscription. And that's when things got real. And I think a lot of people didn't make the decision to leave uh, out of uh, any kind of uh, moral standing, but purely to save their skins and those of their family, which is perfectly understandable. Um, do you think for some of those people, however, they still have the cosplay idea? You know, you can still be... You can still be Russian. You can still partake of this this um, deformed ideology, and nonetheless not commit yourself to dying for it. I, I think so. We haven't seen a widespread sort of movement of repentant Russians abroad, and I'm I'm not somebody who is sort of hardline asking why aren't millions of Ro Russians who live abroad protesting around the world. I, I think there are many good reasons why they're not, including the fact that lots of Russians who live abroad have sort of washed themselves clean of Russia long ago. But those Russians who are living in um, Armenia and Kazakhstan right now, are they going to be sharing patriotic Russian imagery the next time that Russia plays in the World Cup? Probably. Are they going to partaking victory day rituals online or in person probably right are they gonna see their friends share this more extreme material most certainly right this stuff doesn't just disappear overnight and what we're talking about when we're talking about these people who fled conscription is a generation of russians who grew up with a very different life in the 2000s and the early 2010s, essentially before Crimea and the patriotic shift just before that, who did have ideas about living a much more Europeanized life, who did have access to a very different kind of education in schools, whereas with today's children, they will never have experienced the world without Putin. They will have no idea of education that is a, a liberal education in any sense of the word. And they will have had these patriotic lessons in school. They will be growing up in this very propaganda-heavy environment. And they will be growing up in an environment that is increasingly isolated from the West because the government is doing its best to create what I heard somebody recently describe very wonderfully as a splinter net. Its own reality, something that's entirely separate. And indeed, the name of your podcast or your yes. YouTube channel is about right. Right. So Adam Curtis style alternative, uh, not even alternative reality, an entirely consistent reality that, that that almost doesn't border with the reality that we live in. And that's especially worrying for the youth, isn't it? I mean, let's let's turn it back in the last few minutes to the youth, because if you inculcate people with these ideas and values, if from their veriest earliest years, they are you know, watching military demonstrations in kindergarten, if they're watching both fake violence on TV, staged violence, but also real violence, it gives you this sense almost of an Orwellian society, permanently at war, completely immersed in the language of violence, whether it's faked or real. That's extremely difficult to disabuse people of, isn't it? If, if you catch them early age, and that's the sort of amniotic fluid that they're swimming in. 
Absolutely. And, you know, when, when we turn back to the Soviet project, as the evidence for how this might go in the, in the long term, Putin's going to die, right? It's going to be in the next few years, I assume. He might be deposed. But whoever comes next is not going to be some great white shining liberal knight. It's going to be someone who's probably equally bad, maybe play, plays a little nicer with the West, maybe doesn't, we don't know. This sort of schooling, this sort of patriotic material is not going to disappear. And so this is the reality that kids are going to be growing up in for the foreseeable future. And so what I do in the book is think a little bit about the Soviet reality, and that is that we know that the Soviet project was roughly successful in changing people's minds. The common misconception is that most Soviet people wanted out. They didn't. We know that's true. Historians have known it for a long time. Most historian, most Soviet people were fully conversant in the language of Sovietism. They were relatively happy living in the Soviet Union, but they dabbled in the Western market economy, in black market economies, because that's what they needed to fulfill some basic human needs. But that doesn't mean just because they wanted to buy American blue jeans that they wanted to become Americans. And this is what the Putin regime has always understood. And this is what we see today. We see a Russia where people are happy being Putinists, in spite of the fact that those opportunities to actually leave and become very different were on offer for a good decade or so, 10, 12 years, wealth was increasing very rapidly, and we did not see a mass emigration of Russians who were desperate to live a very different life. They took part in the rituals of the state. They watched the state's movies. They went to Victory Day parades. Victory Day parades became a thing, quite openly, right? And now we're upping the level of intensity with childhood indoctrination to an unforeseen degree, and, and a degree that I would suggest we didn't even really see in the Soviet Union, even under Stalin, because of the nature of the surveillance society and technology that we see today. And in the final chapter of the book, I talked to a whole bunch of people who are experts about radicalization and some leading political figures and ask what can we do? And the answer is that we have to do something. We have to treat this as part of the war. That doesn't mean making a military effort to somehow sort of conduct psyops, but it does mean pumping Russia full of propaganda, full of opportunities to see a world outside of being Russian, to see a language that provides alternative realities that says that you can be Russian and you can be good. You can be Russian and Orthodox Christian, but that doesn't mean sacrificing yourself and murdering Ukrainians at the front. It can mean, here's a verse from the Bible that says, love thy neighbor, right? To put it in a really crude fashion. So go and do that. Go and work in your community. Go and help old people instead. It's all plausible. It's stuff we can do. And it's going to be cheap for us to do it as well. I mean, to an extent, is this... Russia's ISIS moment, it, you're looking at a mass radicalization of a population. But, you, you know, in the book, you're contemplating that some at some point, someone's going to have to deal with this problem, and you're going to have to de-radicalize that generation. And, uh, you know, that sounds like an intense piece of work. 
speaking to propagandists or people who are immersed in 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 uh, you know various campaigns and technologies to counter propaganda almost all of them say that countering propaganda with more propaganda doesn't work somehow you have to give them a positive template to follow and i think you've mentioned that there whether it be culture literature architecture you have to give them a positive to replace the deep negativity of the cult that they have become a part of. Absolutely, this is this is the key to it. Two things. Firstly, you can't just tell them they're wrong. Revealing the corruption of the elites, stating that Putin is wrong, stating that Russia needs to be broken up and defederated, it might be the best way to fix things, right, in geopolitical terms, but you'll get what psychologists call a blowback. And that means people will actually retreat further into their imagined worlds and into their cult. And we are talking about a cult-like mentality. So there's no good telling people that they're wrong. The other thing is that we have to construct these positive pathways, right? We have to, and you know, it's, it's easy for us to do this. We have access to vast amounts of data, vast amounts of material, and we have to find ways of saying, well, you can still be this central part of your identity. You can still be Russian. It's okay to be Russian. And I know this is frustrating. If you're a, you know, if you're Ukrainian and you're listening to this, you're probably tearing your hair out and thinking, what are you saying? I hate the Russians. And I get that. But this is about winning the war and not winning battles. And this is a war that, you know, this generation, if we don't, de-radicalize them and show them that there can be a pluralism in identity yes the war in ukraine will end at some point but what about the next war whether it's ukraine again whether it's a civil war within russia whether it's a genocide in russia against for example queer people which is not unthinkable the idea of relatively large-scale targeting or incarceration of of queer people in russia right it's it's not unthinkable it could be a war against the Baltic states. It could be a war in parts of Central Asia. Who knows? It could come anywhere. But if we don't take it seriously now, then it's just going to cost us more and it's going to cost human lives in the future. So we can do it now. And it, it can be done. It's not easy, but it can be done. And in some ways, the history of Russia is an empire in search of an idea or power in search of an idea, whether it's Tsarism, communism, and now ethno-nationalism. Uh, it's difficult to know where it will go, but underlining it is this desire to consume territory, hold together a massive and fragile territory, which Russia is, of multiple nationalities. As you say, if, if that is going to survive as an entity, it will always look around and struggle to find an other which helps it to define itself and hold itself together against, well, the forces of collapse, basically. Absolutely. I know, Ian, we're out of time. Um, could you tell everybody about your book, when it's coming out, when they can buy it? I know it's available for pre-order, um, but I'd love to put some links into the description of this video. It sounds like an incredibly important work uh, to help not only understand what's happening now, but try and find a way forward uh, to get out of this mess. Wonderful. So the book is Z Generation into the Heart of Putin or Russia's Fascist Youth. The publisher is Hearst in London. 
and you can order it from Amazon already. There are a couple of other bookstores. I believe Waterstones has a pre-order link. And if you're in Europe or worldwide, there are various booksellers. Maybe we can drop a couple in the uh, in the video description so that people can find it easily. It will be out on May the 4th, 2023, just in time for Victory Day 2023, whatever that looks like. And I don't imagine it's going to be a big victory, although I'm sure there will be a parade. That is a good bit of PR there, a good bit of timing for the uh, book's launch. I'm sure that is partly intentional. Ian, it's been incredibly thrilling and yet again, quite terrifying talking to you. Um, but it's a huge pleasure. And thank you so much for, for giving us your precious time. Thank you very much, Jonathan.